K through 12 public schools serve nearly one in six Americans and can play a critical role in moving our country towards environmental sustainability. That's according to the newly formed K-12 Climate Commission at the Aspen Institute. The group will develop an action plan that considers how the education sector can mitigate, adapt, educate, and advance equity to address climate change. The commission is made up of youth, parents, educators, advocates, researchers, policymakers, and more. Sitting as co-chairs for the commission are former U.S. Secretary of Education, John B. King, who is now at the Education Trust, and former Governor of New Jersey, Christine Todd Whitman, who is now at Whitman Strategy Group. From the Aspen Institute, I'm Amina Akhtar. This is Aspen Insight. The K-12 Climate Commission wants schools to be a force towards climate action, solutions, and environmental justice. I asked Secretary King and Governor Whitman why schools are such an essential tool in the fight against climate change. We have seen over time the impact that children have on their parents and on the parental behavior when it comes to things like recycling and caring about the environment. So getting to children early to give them the real understanding of humans' relationship to our environment, how we are part of it, and how the preserving of it becomes so important and the importance of climate change and how that is impacting all of us. I don't think it can start early enough getting children outside and getting them appreciate what we have when we let nature do its thing. I, I agree with the governor and, the, and the, the two things I'd add. One is that we're, you know, we're going to look to the next generation to help solve this problem and help grapple with this problem. We're going to do all we can certainly to try to address climate change and prepare for the adaptations that will be necessary because of climate change. But we're counting on young people uh, to, to lead the way into addressing climate change, hopefully reducing our reliance on carbon and thinking through how we adjust as a society to the They're not easy choices. They're not straightforward. It's not an either or, as we both know, as with public policy, it's usually that way, but particularly in this instance. And so giving kids a, a, a background that is scientifically based, which I think is very important, is going to enable them to make the kinds of decisions that, as you point out, Secretary, will, will actually get to some solutions that make sense. And you particularly mentioned hardening uh, ourselves against what's coming, because it's coming. I mean, sea level is rising. We're not gonna stop that. Uh, we can hopefully slow it in the future, but we're not stopping it and we're gonna have to adapt. And children need to understand that. So it's not so scary when it happens. And so they can actually help their parents understand what's going on. That's right. And the other thing is schools are an important part of our infrastructure. We've got a lot of school buildings, we've got a lot of school buses. And so mm -hmm. adjusting our practices around infrastructure has to be a part of our strategy, again, to reduce reliance on carbon. So we can think about how do we move schools towards greater reliance on renewables? How do we mm -hmm. transition bus fleets to electric? Uh, so there's a lot of work to do on the infrastructure side as well. Exactly. Oh, that's, and kids can drive that in their schools too. Absolutely. What attracted you both to become a part of the K-12 coalition? Secretary, I'll let you go uh, first on this one. Okay. All right. Well, I, I'll say 
part, you know, one major factor was Governor Whitman's involvement. I mean, I, to me, it's, it's important that uh, we in this effort bring together educators and people with deep expertise on the environment, which obviously the governor brings. It's important that we think about all the public policy levers from the school building to the school district, to the state, to the federal government. And obviously the governor brings expertise on both the federal levers and the state levers. And you know, states are in many ways the primary driver of education policy. And so it's critical that we have that perspective. Governors are going to need to lead on this issue. Um, and I really like the idea that this is bipartisan. And one of, one of my fears about the politics of climate change is if it becomes a purely partisan issue, it will be much harder to get things done. If you look at Europe, one of the reasons why many of our European peers have made faster progress on addressing climate change is that it, they have uh, a sense of urgency on this issue across the political spectrum. And we need that in the United States. Uh, we don't have many places where there's good bipartisan cooperation these days. Uh, this commission will, will be that place. Well, thank you and for those kind words. But I enjoyed because you're part of it, because the Aspen Institute is sponsoring it, because it is going to be bi nonpartisan, not bipartisan, nonpartisan. Mother Nature doesn't care about geopolitical boundaries or whether you're in a red state, blue state, or whether you're a Republican or Democrat. I mean, we're all facing the coronavirus, for instance. That has nothing to do with how you voted in the last election. Uh, well, maybe the response to it had something to do with that, but uh, not the fact that we're having it. And, you know, I was delighted to be part of this task force because I do feel so strongly that uh, schools are important and getting to children at the earliest times, it's so easy with kids, the younger ones particularly, they love getting out. And I mean, I've got seven grandchildren and they all love going down to the river. I live on a farm, the farm on which I grew up and they love going down to the river and seeing if the June bugs are out and catching crayfish. And that's a way for them to understand about water, how to clean water and what difference clean water makes. Uh, they can see what's happening around them. That's how what got me to it to appreciate what was happening so much is because I grew up on a farm and you see very directly humans impact on the environment and how it can change things for better or for worse. And so when you get young children out and you start to expose them to what we have around us and how well mother nature can adapt and all the fascinating things that go on in nature, you can really grab their attention and their interest. And that will follow them throughout their lives and hopefully as we move on and as they age, they, as you point out, Secretary, they will have to be the ones to solve these problems. We're doing a miserable job of it right now, but they also hopefully will become scientists. Um, we have seen recently that science seems to be being denigrated and scientists pushed aside in so many different ways that uh, it's important that children understand, no, this is a really, really, really important field and they should seriously consider it if they're interested in this. And they shouldn't worry about political interference. There's gonna come a time when we're not gonna accept that anymore. And they should understand that this is a great opportunity to make a very positive difference in the world. Going off of some of your comments, Secretary King, this is indeed a country where climate change is very politicized. What would you have to say to those 
who believe it isn't real or if it's a tool of the political left? I would ask them to just consider what's gone on in this summer. You know, as of July 8th of 2020, way back July, before we had the fires in California that are still raging, people are still being burned out today, new fires, um, and before all the, all the hurricanes and tropical storms, we'd had 10 major climate-related, uh, weather-related events, each of which cost us a billion dollars in response and repair. This is, goes to the bottom line. I mean, this is very important stuff. We pay for it every day, not to mention the loss of, loss of lives and the dislo dislocation of families and businesses, that some of which will never come back. And where do these people rebuild? It's also a national security issue because as we see extended droughts, for instance, in many of the developing countries in the Sub-Sahara, they have nomadic tribesmen who have to feed their, their, their animals. They can't. And so what happens? They have to leave their lifestyle and move into the cities. Well, the cities in those countries <clears throat> are not prepared for them. They don't have jobs. They don't have places for them to live. That's where Al-Qaeda and ISIS go to recruit. That's where major criminal activity is growing. And that has an impact on us, as well as what happens here in the United States from climate-related issues. <clears throat> so all you have to do is look around and you can see and know that the climate's changing. Things are different than was when I was growing up. And for farmers, we've had to here at the farm, we have to reconsider when you plant what, because all of a sudden we have very, very wet springs. So you need something like wet feet. But all of this is just to say that if you take a moment to see what's happening, you'll appreciate that it's real and it is costing. Uh, I would just say amen to everything the governor just said. And, and the one thing I would add is there, there's a real opportunity here to contribute to our long-term prosperity if we lean in to the creation of green jobs, electrifying our homes and businesses. You know, there are projections that there could be as many as 25 million jobs on the other side of a commitment to electrifying the country. You know, moving to renewable energy sources like offshore wind and solar, uh, removing natural gas and our reliance on natural gas from our buildings and homes. So there, there's, there's some real opportunity here. The countries that lead the world on green technology, the countries that, that make the fastest progress on things like electric cars uh, are going to be the countries that win out in the long-term economic competition across the world. So our prosperity uh, will be advanced by smart strategies on climate change. Amen to that. You're absolutely right. <clears throat> what are the strongest facets? I know you guys mentioned the states being in control of education, but um, what do you, Governor Whitman and Secretary King, think the strongest facets of government are when it comes to creating viable policy, policy solutions for climate change? Secretary, you're, you're up. Well, th this is a moment where we, where we need creative leadership at every level of government. And you know, from, from the federal level all the way down to the school level, right? We need the, the school principal who thinks to themselves, hey, there's an opportunity to install solar panels in our school building 
that will reduce our reliance on carbon, but also create this amazing learning opportunity for our students about how solar energy works. Right? So we need, we need creativity at the local level, but we also need federal policies that move us towards both reducing carbon reliance and uh, mitigating the impact of climate change that the governor described. I would love to see us respond to the COVID economic crisis with a major commitment to national service. And part of that, I would love to see a national green corps that would work on uh, environmental issues throughout the country. Um, that, that's an opportunity for leadership and, and again, an opportunity for bipartisan leadership. Senator Coons has a bill to double the size of AmeriCorps. And he has a number of He's a Democrat. He's got a number of Republican co-sponsors of that bill. I'd love to see that happen. And I'd love to see the federal government recommit uh, to the Paris Climate Accord. I'd love to see the federal government leading on incentives for folks to move away from carbon towards renewables. Um, unfortunately, what we've had in this moment is a lack, I think, of uh, creativity and prioritization of this issue. Um, and, and, and we're, we're losing time. We're running out of time to get ahead of this. I couldn't agree more uh, with everything that you said, and particularly the idea of a service requirement of young people uh, to get out of your comfort zone, to get somewhere to see how people live, what are the real issues that we're facing? And AmeriCorps is a wonderful way to do it, but there are a host of others. And I like the idea of a Green Corps. Um, those that are, give young people an opportunity and you know, I would go so far as to say a requirement to spend at least a year, if not two, doing something that's not set up to help others. I think it would benefit us all, but irrespective of that, at least to have that, those opportunities out there for young people, if they wanted to take some time and work directly on the environment, if they wanted to take some time and work directly on housing or on um, strengthening and, and hardening our communities that are going to have to respond to the impacts of climate change. Um, I'd love to have the young people thinking about how do you how do you create those economic opportunities when you have these challenges in front of us? They're already in Alaska. The, the Arctic is warming at twice the rate of the rest of the, of the world. And our native Alaskan villages, many of them have are having to move because they cannot survive anymore where they are because of sea level rise and the storms and saltwater intrusion. That's important, but where do you move them? And who moves them? Who pays for that? Who are they? Uh, what do you move first? Is it the homes or the hospital? Is it the grocery store or is it the courthouse? Uh, how do you get power to them? These are huge challenges coming at us and we need the best creative minds, and that's gonna be the young people, it really is. I mean, we, again, as I would say, we seem to be failing pretty badly. We shouldn't give up. <laughs> we can still start to get at this now, but young people are gonna have enormous opportunities for new jobs, new thinking, new openings that will help everybody, not just in the United States, but around the world. Thank you. Going off of the opportunities for young people. What is one thing you both wish you had in school to learn more about the relationship between people and the earth, whether it was in elementary or university? 
Well, certainly I'll, I'll start on this one. I mean, I grew up on a farm, so I had that experience and I had parents who were very committed to the environment. And, you know, the mantra was always leave a place better than what you found, how you found it. But I don't remember, you know, other than dissecting a frog in biology, that there was much of an emphasis on the impact that human activity has on changing ecosystems and what that can ultimately mean down the road to um, our overall health. And that's something that we really need to understand and have a better, of which I have a better understanding as well, because we are part of the environment. As I think I said earlier, we, we are not separate. We're not some separate animal. We're just part of that whole ecosystem. And we need to understand that we do have the ability to positively change things as well as the ability to really hurt the environment. And I think that I found that lacking. Obviously, when you get to college, you have all sorts of opportunities and electives, and there was more opening to that sort of thing. In fact, in my college, we all had to, as freshmen, for the first year, we had a what we call quadrants, and it was a small patch of land that we were supposed to go to every week and record what was changing there, or every month, I guess, what was changing there, and write it down and report on that. And it was a way to force people to say, hey, look, um, things are growing, they're not growing, why wouldn't they be growing? What happens after a heavy rainstorm? And when I was recruited by my daughter over um, the COVID last March and April to tutor my grandkids for uh, a little bit, which is well outside my realm of, of capabilities, one of the things I did is I made them each adopt a piece of their properties outside and tell me each week what, what changes they'd seen, if any. It was fun. I love that. That's fantastic. Uh, I, I was a city kid, so I, I, I got precious little sense of the uh, uh, relationship between people and the environment. I wish we I wish that had been a, an area of more focus in my sort of K-12 experience. I also wish we'd had more conversation about some of the disparities of the impact of these issues of environmental justice on low-income communities, communities of color. Um, you know, there's both understanding how human beings are impacting the environment and understanding how we are making choices about which communities bear the brunt of the consequences right. of those ways that we interact with the environment. So I think about how we can see in the pattern of deaths from COVID-19, the disparities that are a result of differences in air quality in different communities. Um, yeah. So th there's no question that um, there are environmental justice issues that, that young people need to understand. I wish I had gotten more of that. And I hope that my kids have a better understanding of that. And I hope we can do more in our schools to make sure that young people are thinking about you know, how the choices about transportation, about sanitation, about where um, high pollution facilities are sited, how all mm -hmm. of those decisions ultimately impact um, communities in very different ways. Oh, absolutely. I, I think that's hopefully environmental justice is an issue that's getting more attention now because it, the, it's so stark with the COVID numbers, uh, the disparity. On, on what's happening, who gets it and who dies. Uh, it's, 
mind-boggling how really in your face it is and people have got to own up to it and it comes from years and decades of decision making that did not respect those who didn't necessarily have a big political influence because they weren't the wealthy communities or they weren't the well-connected communities and our obligation is to everybody. Um, I love this mention of environmental justice. A lot of people in America have lost faith over the summer in the justice system in general. Um, how do you give hope or bring positivity to the future of environmental justice? Well, first you acknowledge it and you have to face it up front and face the fact that it's come through decades of decision-making of conscious, some of it conscious decision-making because the communities in which many of these facilities were most polluting facilities were located were the ones that could put up the least resistance because they didn't have the political infrastructure to fight back. Um, we need to acknowledge that. We need to look at that again and we need to see what we can do to change it now. What can we do about those existing facilities, not just where we locate, locate new facilities, but what do we do about the existing ones? How do we ensure that, that mass transit is available in, in poor communities and that is clean transport? How do we look at, uh, I mean, I can remember going down to Camden and the smell from the sewage facility that was located right next to a housing complex was overwhelming. And I was thinking, how can anyone, anyone, live here it's but they don't have a choice and there are things though we can do to mitigate that that can be moved that can be encapsulated better that can be handled there's so much of this that's just kind of been let slide because those people didn't couldn't fight back and they had to spend most of their time trying to eke out a living and make sure that they had a, a roof over their heads and that they could send their kids to school or feed them and basic things like that and that's the other part of, of what we're seeing with the COVID um, is those communities of, of color, particularly that children, the, the schools are closing down because kids tend to come from more, many of them come from uh, crowded living conditions where COVID will spread. And so you'll get a case, they'll close it down. They're missing meals and children can't learn without food. And the schools for many of them are their sole producers of their hot, one hot meal a day. It all, and you know what, we're all gonna pay the price down the road for that. And that's what we have to remember, but we have to take this particular issue very seriously. Yeah, I mean, I agree with all that. The one thing I would add is, you know, I, I draw a lot of inspiration from the activism of young people. And we're trying to involve young people in our commission. Uh, and we hope to hear from a lot of young people who are doing organizing on environmental justice in their own community. You know, I think about uh, there's a young woman, Little Miss Flint, who has, since she was in early elementary, been an advocate in Flint, Michigan for water quality. You know, <laughs> I think about young people who are organizing in Louisiana, who've seen the impact of Katrina in their, in their own community and have seen the, th the constant threat of new hurricanes and tropical storms. And so they're, they're organizing young people who are organizing um, in community after community around issues of immediate concern to, to their neighborhoods, their families. Uh, I think about what the Sunrise Movement is accomplishing around the country. And it doesn't mean everyone has to agree on every policy detail, 
But, you know, I taught high school civics. I love the idea that part of what we are trying to cultivate is youth voice and youth leadership and making sure young people are at the table as we are sorting through as a society how we move forward. Governor Whitman and Secretary King, thank you very much. Um, I'd like to ask if you have anything else you'd like to add. Well, I think the secretary just encapsulated why this task force is so important. Uh, we need to get out because as you educate the children, particularly the young ones, they educate their parents and their parents take more of an interest in what they're learning. And that benefits us all as we go down the road. So I'm excited to be part of this. And I want to thank the Aspen Institute for having instituted it. <laughs> yes, I, I would echo that. Thanks. And just, you know, I, I see the Aspen Institute as such an important institution to bring people together to, to focus uh, deeply and thoughtfully on the toughest challenges we face as a society. And I'm just grateful to have this opportunity with the governor and the other members of the commission to spend some time thinking through how do we best mobilize the education sector to address climate change and also to help us uh, mitigate its impact for our society. To learn more about the K-12 Climate Initiative, follow at K-12 Climate Act on Twitter or head to www.k12climateaction.org. Thank you to my colleagues who made this episode possible. Christina Sacconi, Laura Shifter, and Greg Gershney. Subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and follow at Aspen Institute on Twitter and Instagram to stay up to date with our work. Thanks for listening.